we are going to learn some lessons from the lake. And so if you would open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 22. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. And you're going to open there, and you're going to go, oh, well, I know what this is all about. Like, I haven't heard this a million times. Um, but I, I am going to be very bold tonight, and I'm going to say to you that I believe God has a lesson for every single one of you tonight. It may not be the same one. It may be different for each one, but I believe God is going to speak to every person in this room tonight with a lesson from the lake. And so as we look in Matthew chapter 14, um, to get a little background, in verses 13 through 21... If we look back there, we would see that Jesus was trying to get alone. He was trying to get away from the crowds. And, and why was that? Well, we're, we're told that he had just heard about the death of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And I think that Jesus wanted to get a little time alone to spend with the Lord. And I think part of that time was to grieve the death of John the Baptist. Remember that Jesus said about John, there's never been a guy greater in the history of the world as far as a man than John the Baptist. And I think he wanted to grieve. Now, we might say, well, Jesus was God. Why did he need to spend time alone grieving? But we need to remember that though Jesus was fully God, he was fully human. And I think we forget that sometimes. He was fully human as well. And I think that he wanted to get some time alone to grieve the death of his cousin. But as usual, whenever Jesus went to try to get time alone, what would happen? Well, the crowds would follow him. You see, they didn't care that he needed some time alone. They wanted their time with him. And, and as usual, Jesus' compassion for the people overruled his need to be alone. Now, before we even get into the text, there's a couple of good principles here for us. And I think one is, and I, and I said I'm going to speak to everyone here, and I know there's some in this position. It's okay at times to want to be alone to grieve. Did you know that? You know, we get a lot of advice in how to grieve uh, a loss. But it's okay sometimes to be alone. Now, we don't want to be alone all the time. That wouldn't be good. We don't want to isolate ourselves from people. But sometimes we just need to be alone, just us and God, to grieve the loss that we've had. And it's okay. Jesus did it. But number two is that when we're in that place, and Jesus might have been at that place, where we think, I can't do anymore. I'm done. I'm exhausted. I'm, I, I'm depleted. I've given everything I have. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. Well, when we're at that place, even then, God can give us what we need to complete his work. If he has a task for us, and we're supposed to do that task, he can give us what we need, and he gave that, the Father gave that to Jesus. And if you follow the narrative there through verse 21, you'll see that Jesus then goes on and he heals a bunch of people and then he feeds the crowd miraculously. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that if Jesus had been selfish and said, no, nope, done, out of here, gone alone, even though he needed it, if he would have done that, that those miracles wouldn't have taken place? You ever thought about that? And who knows that at some point in time when God's called us to do something and we think we're depleted, that a miracle may happen. So two good principles there. And as we seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus, 
then I would hope that we would have that kind of compassion to minister to people that he had. And even though at times we may not feel strong enough to do it, that's always a good place to be. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that every single time you have to be the one to answer the call. Because God wants to use other people too. And I think sometimes we just, you know, go ahead. Are you one of those kind of people that just can't say no to anybody, anytime? I know we have some of you in there. Okay? And it may be that God wants to use somebody else. We have to be led by the Holy Spirit. But I think also that we want to be careful that even when we're depleted, even when we're exhausted, we don't want to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. And if he is telling you to do it, then he gives you the power and the ability to do it. And that's what happened here with Jesus in this previous time. So now, with that background, let's go ahead and move into our text. And we're in Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. And it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up onto a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So this time now, Jesus dismisses a crowd and he does. He withdraws. He goes to be Alone, And it's interesting because at this point in time, if you read the parallel account, which is one of them is in John uh, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, it tells us what his motivation for really wanting to be alone is at this time. So why don't you turn there with me real quick. You might keep a finger in John because we're going to go back a couple of times. John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Not hard to find. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 6, 14, it says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, what sign? Well, that was the feeding of the 5,000. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, that's interesting, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You know, oftentimes... Jesus would say when other people wanted him to do something, he would say, my time has not yet come. And see, Jesus knew here that if the people would try to make him king at this point in time, when it wasn't really his time, he knew that it would set events in motion that eventually would lead to his death. Now you say, well, how, how can you say that? How do you know that? Well, look. The Jews were under Roman rule. Now, can you imagine that they were going to let the people anoint a king? There was no king but Caesar. In fact, they worshiped Caesar as God. Of course, they weren't going to let them do that. They would have had to act in some way. Not to mention that the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel were not going to allow that to happen either. There was no way that that was going to happen. And Jesus had things to do and accomplish. And that's why he would say, no, it's not my time yet. No, it's not time for you to try to raise me up as a king. And we also know that that's exactly what did happen when that time came. But instead, Jesus responds here, sending his disciples to the other side of the lake while he goes up to the mountain to pray alone. Now, we're going to see that there's a twofold action to uh, what Jesus does here. But the main reason is Jesus needed to be alone with the Father. Now, again, why would he need that? I mean, Jesus is God. Why does he need to be alone? Why does God need to be alone with God, as those people who try to disprove the Trinity would say? 
<laughs> but that's because there's three persons to this God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the answer comes from Jesus' own words. Again, I told you to stay in John. If you look at John chapter 5, verse 30, John 5, 30, Jesus says this, and I want you to pay close attention to this very first sentence. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. What? Jesus is God. He can do anything. But remember, Jesus is also fully human, and he veiled some of his attributes when he came to this earth. And we can argue forever about which ones those were. I don't want to get into that night. But he says, I didn't say it. He says, I can do nothing of myself. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And in John 8, 42, just flip over there, a couple chapters to your, to your right. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Now when he's speaking here, he's saying from the Father. The term God can sometimes mean God the Father, and sometimes it can mean the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have to be careful there, but he prefaced it. He said, if God were your father. So he's saying, I have come from God the Father. Not on my own initiative, but he sent me. Then lastly, in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 49. He says this. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and to what to speak. So again, Jesus is saying he needs to spend time with the Father because he has to hear from the Father. Now again, you're going to have to wrestle with this. And we're not going to solve all those issues tonight about how that works. I'm just going by the word of God that Jesus says, I've got to spend time with my Father. I need to hear what he has to say. And the Bible often says, the New Testament says, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Well, how is that if he's God? I teach this in the Firm Foundation class. There are some who would say, because Jesus gave up some of his attributes, the reason he knew everything was because the Holy Spirit was speaking to him. I personally hold to that view. But you don't have to. But we do know this. Jesus was dependent upon the Father and the Spirit while he was here on earth in the flesh. And I would say this to you. If Jesus could do nothing without spending time in prayer with his Father, how could we possibly think that we could do anything without spending time in prayer with the Father? Now, I want you to understand here, we're not just talking about the kind of prayer that's, okay, God, do this for me, do that for me. Please, I want this, I need that. And I'm not saying that's wrong. You should do that. We're to ask for our daily needs. We're told that in Scripture. But this is a different kind of prayer. And I want you to, I'm going to pull a Charles Stanley here. Listen closely. Don't miss this. Okay? But the kind of prayer he's talking about is seeking in prayer God's will and the power to do his will. Can I say that again? It's seeking God's will and seeking the power to do his will. And this should be the ultimate goal in prayer that we always have. Ultimately, we say, 
your kingdom come, your will be done. God, I'm seeking your will. Give me the power to do your will. And it should be the ultimate goal of our lives, to do God's will. And did you realize that in doing his will, that is the proof that you belong to him. That's the proof that you are in Christ. Matthew 7.21, you can put it in your notes. Matthew 7.21, remember when Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now that's a sobering statement. And it's not the only time it's spoken of in Scripture. If you look further in, or back in Matthew chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he wasn't being disrespectful, he was making a point. Matthew 12, 49, pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, don't get this backwards. We do not do the will of the Father to get saved. In the first place, that would be impossible. Why? Because you can't do the will of the Father unless you have the Holy Spirit residing inside of you. And you don't have that until you are saved. So don't get it backwards. We do the will of the Father because we are saved. And when we are saved, we receive a power, power called dunamis power, the power of dynamite. And that power is dwelling inside us to give us the ability to do the will of the Father. So if tonight you're kind of looking at your life and you go, you know, I'm not sure I'm really doing God's will a lot. I'm not sure I'm seeing that in my life. Then what do you need to do? Well, you need to do what Jesus did. You need to get alone, get in your prayer closet, and pray. And you need to start asking God to show you his will, and you need to start asking God to give you the power to do his will. And the neat thing about that is you have a guaranteed positive response. How often is it you can go to God and pray and know that you will receive what you ask for? Why do I say that? Because Jesus told us, anything that's in the will of the Father, you will receive. It's a guarantee. So when you go and you ask the Lord to, to show you his will, and you ask him to give you the power to do his will, that is a guarantee from him that you will receive that. All right, back to our text. Verse 24. And the boat, remember we're out on the lake, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. So Jesus sent his disciples away to the other side of the lake. Now, some of you have been there, and you know how far away the other side of the lake is, right? The Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret. It's really a lake. And uh, I don't think you can see the other side from some points, if I'm not mistaken here. But I haven't been there, so 
You guys have one up on me there. But he sent him away to the other side of the lake. He went up to the mountainside to pray. Now, during the voyage, the boat and all its occupants were being battered by the wind and the waves. And the details in Mark and John tell us also that it was dark. So maybe it wasn't a full moon. It might have been darker than usual. And that they were straining at the oars, and they'd really only gotten about three to four miles. And then all of a sudden, they see this figure walking on the water right at them. And the account says that they were terrified, believing that they were seeing a ghost. But then Jesus exhorts them, and he says, Do not be afraid. Take courage. And then he shares these very comforting words, It is I. Now, I find it interesting that in the Bible, so often, Jesus talks to followers about fear. Did you know that it occurs at least eight times just in the book of Matthew? So it seems like it's a pretty important topic and one of the lessons that we need to learn from the lake. See, we could tend to believe that the followers of Jesus were easily frightened because Jesus spoke about it so often, and we saw some examples of it. But, you know, I don't really think that's the case. I mean, after all, I think about this. It took a lot of courage just to follow Jesus during this time, didn't it? Because remember, for many of them, if they left their homes and their families and they were shunned from following because they were following Jesus from their families and their homes and their friends, and they didn't have any knowledge of what was going to happen to them. They didn't know the future. Jesus said, come and follow me, and they went. They didn't know for how long it was going to be. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. That's pretty courageous, isn't it? At least I think so. It also meant that they were going to be despised by their kinsmen, and they were going to be ridiculed by the Romans. They thought, the Romans thought, these guys are idiots. Why would they do this? I think that they had courage. And I think that the 12 disciples, maybe excluding one, were just ordinary people, just like you, just like me, and at times they were afraid of things. Now, they were afraid of this storm, and I have to say, it, it must have been really bad, because remember, a bunch of them were experienced fishermen. They weren't going to get frightened easily in a storm. And, you know, I think for a long time, I didn't really get, you know, I've been on a lake before. Um, I used to go up to Lake Lopez, if anybody's been there, fishing up there, and I've been on some lakes, and you know, maybe a little rain or whatever, and, you know, get some ripples in the water. I'm like, you know, I don't get this. Well, when my son and family uh, moved to Indiana, South Bend, Indiana, um, we went to visit, and my daughter-in-law is a beach person. Any place that she's at, she's got to find water and at least pretend it's the beach, okay? So <clears throat> we took a drive to St. Joseph, Michigan. How many of you have been there? yeah. Chuck and Cindy there, that's where Cindy Steen, uh, that's where she uh, grew up. And so we're out Lake Michigan in the wintertime, and now I get it. I mean, those waves, scarier than the wedge. When I've been out on the wedge at 12 feet, it was scarier than that. And they're breaking over this lighthouse there. Probably you've seen pictures of it. And I'm scared to death. We're walking out on the pier, and my grandkids are on there, and I keep telling them, come back here. I don't want you out there. I mean, it's scary. So I started to get this, at how scary and frightened they could, they could be because if it's a storm like that on a lake, I wouldn't want to be out on the water. 
And after all, Jesus never said anything about go over to the uh, other side of the lake and a storm's going to come up and then I'm going to walk out on the water and meet you there, okay? He didn't tell him that ahead of time. He just said go row over to the other side. I think it was a natural reaction that anybody would have to a supernatural event for them to be out in the middle of this storm and see a figure walking towards them. But what's really important to see here is the response of Jesus to their fear. Instead of rebuking the disciples, Jesus encourages them. So how does he do that? Well, a couple of different ways. First, he encourages them with his words. He says, take courage, which can also be translated, be bold, have confidence. He's telling them, you need to replace your fear with courage and boldness and confidence. Now, that's nice, but it brings up a question. Why should they? I mean, you ever had that where people come and tell you, oh, just, you know, don't be afraid. Just come on. You know, or people tell you anything and they don't give you a reason why. They just say, oh, you need to do this. You know, be strong. Come on. Buck up. And then you're like, well, give me some kind of reason why I should. The storm's still raging. They don't know what's going to happen. And they're not even sure yet who's speaking to them. So what reason would they have to get rid of their fear and replace it with boldness and courage? Well, the answer to that, of course, is in Jesus' next sentence. And again, it's a point I want you to pay very close attention to. Because if you do, it's going to make a huge difference in how you approach fear and how you deal with fear in your life. And I love the fact, I didn't say anything to Shane about one of those songs he sang about this, um, about fear. But the second way Jesus encourages and the reason he gave them to not be afraid was with his next sentence when he says, it is I. It is I. You see, Jesus is letting them know, and of course if he's letting them know, he's letting us know, that when he is present in our situation, we don't need to fear. In his presence... Fear can always be replaced with confidence and boldness. I love Psalm 1611 because it says that this is something his presence brings. It doesn't bring fear. He says in Psalm 1611, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Wow. You can replace your fear with not only boldness and courage, but joy in his presence. And you may know that in your head, but some of you are thinking, but what about you know, those times when he just doesn't feel present? I'm not even sure that he's really there. And when that happens, we cannot let our emotions dictate what we think. We have to go back to God's word, Matthew 28.20 says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we base our belief on what he says, not what we feel. Remember Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. You know, we always go back to Matthew, but I think it's a passage we sometimes forget. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. If you don't know this, write it down. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, and then it goes on to say, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. 
what will man do to me? You see, if you're in Christ, he is always present with you. And if he is always present with you, then there's no need to fear. I think tonight, if you're in a place where something's going in your life and you may be fearful of what's going to happen, you need to remember, Jesus is saying to you, don't fear, take courage. It it is I. I'm here with you. You know, and his power to give you what you need is, it's interesting because it's really demonstrated in the fact of this is a guy who walked out in the middle of the storm to the boat. You think he's got enough power to fix your circumstance? I think he does. I think he does. And some of you might say, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not really experiencing that in my life. And again, I'm going to submit to you that if that's the case, if you're not experiencing that in your life, then I'm going to say this to you. I think it's because you're not spending enough time alone with the Lord. And I can say that of experience from literally hundreds of people coming into my office. And when they are experiencing those things, the first question I'm going to ask, and if you come in there, be prepared for this one. How much time are you spending with the Lord every day? Do you take time in reflective study and prayer? And the answer is usually not enough. There's an old book. Some of you probably have it. It's by a guy named Brother Lawrence. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. That's an interesting title, isn't it? The Practice of the... You mean i got to practice God's presence? And that's kind of what he's saying. The gist of it is, is that in order to experience the presence of the Lord in your life... You need to take time to be with him, time in a devotional way, where you're just spending time, you and him. You're speaking to him and you're listening to him. You're reading his word and you're reflecting upon what he's trying to tell you and speak to you in his word. And the more time you spend reading, studying, reflecting on God's word, speaking and listening to him, then the more you're going to sense his presence in your life. It's really, it's really that simple. Well, let's look at the next lesson that we can learn from the lake here. And that's in verses 28 through 31. So what happens next? You've got to love this. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, verse 30, he was afraid... And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I'm going to say to you, and I told you, I think there's a lesson for everyone here. And and I believe that this is one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture. Because the usual take, and I've heard it probably a hundred times, is that this is all about Peter's lack of faith. Now, Peter just took his eyes off Jesus. What a lack of faith. Well, I think it's just the opposite. I think it's a lesson on the power of taking a step of faith, a step of obedience, without guarantee of any outcome. I mean, think about this. Why would Peter even ask this? They're all scared in the middle of the storm. And he says, oh, it's Jesus. Hey, Jesus, if it's really you, would you just call me to come out? And I'm going to come out to you. What was he thinking? 
And you know what? I think Jesus set this whole thing up on purpose. You know, he has many things he wants to teach us in anything that he does. But I think he set this whole thing up, sending them out there, knowing there was going to be a storm, knowing they were going to be scared, knowing all these things, and knowing that Peter was going to learn a lesson because he was going to take a step of faith that I don't think hardly anybody would have taken. So look, if it was you on the boat, I'm going to ask you this. How many of you, even when Jesus said, okay, Pete, come on out, how many of you would have gone? Okay, come on. How many of you would have taken that step? Raise your hand. Show of hands. Come on. See, you're too scared to even raise your hand. You'd never be getting out of the boat. No way. And then... After this step of faith, what often happens to all of us, and happened to Peter, was he got a little scared. He started looking at the circumstances, and I'm sure he was thinking, why did I think this was a good idea? Why did I do this? And he began sinking. But what's great about this is he called out, and a lot of people say, shortest prayer ever, Lord, save me. And the lesson that we have to learn here is that when we take a step of faith and we maybe get a little scared, we can call out to be saved. Look at all the times in the Bible that God delivered his people from really impossible circumstances. Think about it. The exodus alone should be enough proof for any of us that God rescues from situations. But you can think of Abraham. You can think of Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Esther, Ruth, Elijah, Paul, you can go on and on and see how many times God delivered them from what seemed to be impossible circumstances. But if you looked closely again and you took all those names, you'd see something that they all had in common. You see, these were all people who took a step of faith in obedience to God. It wasn't just God delivering them from their stupid decisions, although if you look at Lot, God certainly does that too. But these people in particular had taken steps of faith and obedience to God, and then things didn't always go so well, and God stepped in and he delivered them. Peter had taken that same enormous step of faith. I think I'd ask you this. Have you ever felt the leading of the Lord in a, in a certain direction? But because, like Peter, you couldn't see the final outcome and then circumstances kind of went awry that you just maybe weren't as strong in your faith. Maybe you got a little scared. Or, maybe even this, have you ever not chosen to take that step of faith that you thought God was leading because you couldn't see the outcome? I know that's happened in my life. Where I felt God's leading... But I didn't know how it was going to go, and I didn't take that step of faith. But you know, there are also times in my life where I've taken that step of faith, like Peter did. And then I've taken my eyes off of Jesus, and the negative circumstances that are surrounding it begin to kind of pull you down. But then, like Peter, I've called out to Jesus and said, Lord, save me from this situation. Deliver me from where it's going here. And I have to tell you that the Lord has come through every single time. Every single time. 
See, this is a big lesson from the lake. God will always, always honor steps of faith and obedience to his call. And later, when you falter, if you falter, he is always there to save you. You just need to call out to him. There's a story about a man. He was driving an old Ford on a lonely road when it chugged to a stop. He was at a loss about what to do since he didn't know much about cars. But he got out, put the hood up, and began to tap here and there, jiggle the wire. And then when he heard the roar of a car coming toward him, and as it got closer, he saw it was a brand new Lincoln. And this fellow was nice enough to pull over. And he stepped out of the Lincoln. He walked up and said, what's the trouble? Oh, he said, I can't get this old Ford to go. Well, replied the good Samaritan, let me see. So he began to tinker inside and asked, do you have a screwdriver? He took a screwdriver and he adjusted something. Then he got inside and started it right up. Say, thanks a lot. That's great. Who are you? Putting his coat back on, the man said, well, I'm Henry Ford, so I ought to know a little bit about this car I made. (laughs) You see, God is your maker, and he knows everything about you and how to fix it. Every single thing. Now, it's interesting that after Jesus saves Peter, he asks him a, a pointed question. He says, Peter, why did you doubt? And another lesson for us is that, you know, if we really want to grow in our faith, we need to ask ourselves the same question. Why do we ever doubt or not trust the Lord in a situation that he is able to rescue and will rescue us from whatever circumstance we're in. And you know, unfortunately, Jesus asked Peter the question, but I don't know if it bugs you, but it bugs me. He didn't answer. Peter gave no answer. Don't you wish he did? I want to know, Peter, why did you doubt? That would help me to maybe understand why I doubt sometimes. And what is it about our situations when we take that step of faith like Peter did that we will take our eyes off of Jesus and we will get in that place where we're not trusting him? Well, one reason is answered by Jesus in the actual uh, statement there before the question. He says, oh, you of little faith. Doesn't that hurt? Doesn't that out you? Oh, you of little faith. Because... He said that to Peter, but he has said that to me more than once. He's placed that impression in my heart when I have not trusted, when I've doubted, when I've put myself in that situation after a step of faith and then faltered. Why do you have so little faith? Now look, if you're a brand new believer here tonight, I'm not talking to you. You haven't had the time to experience all these things. You've you've had Jesus rescue you from your sin and salvation, but maybe you've never experienced like many of us have, God's rescuing power in many situations. We have no excuse. You're not there yet. I'm speaking to us mature believers here. Those of us who, like Peter, have seen Jesus' miraculous abilities. We've experienced them, and yet sometimes we still doubt. So why do we not trust him every single time? And again... 
it's because sometimes of our just lack of faith. But I think there's a little more of an answer to it. Matthew 26, 41. Uh, remember when uh, Jesus said this. Watch and pray to the disciples, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, if we're walking in the flesh, we're not going to trust God. We're going to be looking to the world. We're going to be looking to people. We're always going to be looking to something other than God to help rescue us from our situation. And i got to tell you something. That is a losing proposition. That is not a winner. But I think, as the Scripture says, that you know, oftentimes we start off in the Spirit, trusting God, but then we get beat up by the storms of life, and because our flesh is weak, then like Peter, we begin to think, well, maybe God wasn't leading me at all, and if he wasn't leading me, then how can I expect him to deliver me? You ever been there? Where you started out in faith, and you took this bold step, and then you got there, and things weren't going somewhere well, and, and, and then you go, well, maybe God wasn't leading me, so I deserve to be where I am. And I have to tell you this, that I found over the years, many years that I've followed Christ, over 50 now. Yeah, I was only one when I came to the Lord, you know. <laughs> I found that over the years that I can lose trust in God by just overanalyzing things too much. You know, paralysis by analysis. You ever have that affect you? Sometimes you just, you're trying to figure it all out instead of just saying, no, I know I was following God's leading and I'm just going to trust that he's going to see me through. And sometimes we think, well, if I heard from the Lord, shouldn't it be easier than this? And the answer to that question is, no. No. God doesn't call you and I to just do the easy things. I know most of you aren't old enough to remember this, but President Kennedy gave a speech one time about our space program when he said, we're going to the moon. And, and, and trust me, you young people, you have no clue. That may seem easy to you now with all our technology, but they had no idea how to even get the ship off the ground at this time yet when he's saying this. We lost in the space race. But I remember he said this also. He said, we choose to do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Isn't that a great statement? Sometimes God chooses you to do something not because it's easy, but because it is hard. And he needs a person of faith to be able to do it. And you know, I found another thing that I have at times thinking I was following God's leading made a wrong decision. I know that seems impossible for you guys to believe, but it's true. But I've also found this, that even if I've blown it and made a decision I thought was in the spirit but might have been in the flesh, maybe my flesh just got the best of me, God fixes it. You call out to him, Lord, I'm sorry, I don't think I made the right decision here. Would you just fix this? And he does. You see, I think sometimes we forget how much God really loves us. You know, we're going to make mistakes. I used to tell my students all the time, you're going to make mistakes. That's why they put erasers on pencils. <laughs> Did you know that? You're going to make mistakes. 
And you know, God's not going to punish you because you made a mistake. You made a bad call. You made a bad choice. Now, you might reap some of the circumstances or some of the consequences for a, for a mistake. Yes, in the flesh. But God's not punishing you. God loves you. And he just wants you to come to him and say, Lord, I, I, maybe I missed it here. Would you just help me out of this? Would you fix this? God always comes through. Another one of my favorites, Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart plans his way. That's us and how we think. But the Lord directs his steps. You see, when we're really seeking the Lord and we have a plan and we go through it, eventually God's going to direct our steps. And if they were turning wrong to begin with, he's going to turn them right. He'll get you there. You see, we don't need to overanalyze it. We just need to go to him and ask, Lord, what do I do next? If I messed up here, what do I do next? Show me now. Push me in the right direction. He'll do that. And so like Peter, rather than trying to figure it all out, apparently he didn't because he didn't answer back, he just moves on and does the next thing. And I think we need to do that at times. I think we need to quit sitting there and trying to figure it all out, beat ourselves up and go, okay, Lord, I made a mistake. Thank you that you're going to step in. Thank you you're going to direct me. Thank you you're going to help me. And I'm going to move on instead of sitting here and just, you know, waddling in my own self-pity. Well, let's conclude with one final lesson. And I promise you this one's short. One final lesson from the lake. Verses 32 and 33 of Matthew 14. It says, And when they climbed into the boat, that means Jesus and Peter, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat, notice this, worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. It's a simple lesson. There's really no commentary necessary here. Let's just follow the example of the disciples here. When God delivers us, let's acknowledge him for who he is. Let's give him the glory and let's worship him. Simple as that. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. And again, Lord, um, only bold enough to say that there's something here for everyone because it's your word. And God, you speak to us when we open our ears and our hearts to listen to you. And, and so I pray that for each of us, and I know myself included here, Lord, that you spoke to me uh, mightily through these words. God, even though it's a story that I've read many, many times and a story that I've learned other things from, you always have something new to show us as we study your word. So I pray tonight that each person here will take that lesson that they know is for them tonight. Lord, that they will uh, apply that lesson to their life. And God, that ultimately they will see that this is a story of how much you love us, how much you care about us. You orchestrated these events to teach the disciples so many lessons but mostly to show them how much you love them. You love them so much, Lord, that you were willing to lay down your life for each one of them, as you did for us as well. And so thank you, Lord, for that. As we acknowledge who you are, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Lord, you are worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, and we give that to you tonight. And Lord, I'm just uh, going to ask if there's anyone here tonight that came in and 
they've never made this commitment to you. They don't really know what this is uh, all about, but they know this, that something must be special about this God who cares about people so much. And if there's someone here tonight, Lord, that wants to make a commitment to you, that wants to come to you, wants to acknowledge that, Jesus, you are God and that you came and lived in this earth, died to save us from our sin and bring us into relationship with you, that they would make that commitment tonight. And if that's you tonight and you're saying, I, I want to get to know this, this God, I want to get to know this Jesus who loves me and, and you want to follow him tonight, it's, it's very simple. You just lift up a prayer to him. You, you ask him to come into your life. You acknowledge that he is God, that he died to save you from your sin and you want to receive the forgiveness of sin that he has for you. Just speak that to him tonight. And you can become a Christian. And Lord, I just pray for that person. And Lord, for each one here who is looking at their lesson and going, okay, Lord, I need this one. Would you give them the strength and the ability uh, to follow whatever leading you have for them? And we'll just give you all the praise and glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.